Hello and welcome to MapBytes episode 118. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, a Jurassic Resurrection, an archaeological dig for software and domestic role reversal. But first, we heard from Phil. Great to hear from you, Phil, with a fantastic idea. You may recall Colin Payne wrote back in 106, the trolley dolly from hell, if you remember. Another shopping disaster, you mean? That was the one where they had to dismantle half the trolley crash to extricate my smiley coin. Anyway, Colin recommended that I just try the scanner on a new S. Now, he said for him, Yosemite, it was working fine. I said I would, and then life took over, as it always seems to, to be honest. So, spurned on by Phil and Colin, I finally checked out what was possible with a scanner that hails from the Jurassic era. The following is the situation on High Sierra. <laughs> haven't dared do the Mojave thing yet. No, it didn't want to know without a driver, and no, the driver from Fujitsu wouldn't install. Now, Phil's mail was as follows. Hi, Elaine and Mike. On a recent MapBytes episode, you mentioned your issues with the ScanSnap S510M under Mojave. An option worth looking at if you haven't already is an application called ViewScan, which should let you keep your scanner running under Mojave, and it's from hamrick.com. I also have an old ScanSnap S510M, which I use on an old 2009 Mac Mini running El Capitan server. I'm hoping to keep running like that until the old Mini finally dies, but I've been looking at ViewScan as a potential option to allow me to use the scanner under Mojave or 10.15 in the future. Unfortunately, ViewScan is about £100 for the Pro version, but it's cheaper than replacing the scanner. The standard edition is around £40 and this may work okay, with DevonThink Pro doing the OCR. Best wishes, Phil. So, enter ViewScan from Hamrick. Now, I did buy a copy of ViewScan back in December 2006. I actually bought that to revive my Epson flatbed scanner at the time. That one's from the pre-Jurassic era. <laughs> Seriously, I, I used that on Windows for years, so it must be at least 18 years old now. Now, as ever, I went for the Pro version. Always go for the Pro version. Um, this time a view scan. And it cost me back then, 2006, $79 with free lifetime upgrades. Ooh, yes, that, that's worked out well. It worked fantastically well with the Epson. Better, actually, than the driver that shipped with the Epson. And that was on Windows because I, I don't recall it having a driver on the Mac. Wait for this, Mike. It just worked. I plugged it in the Mac Ooh. and it just worked. I know it was a long time ago, like I said. Um, but ViewScan gave me way more options than I could ever need or use. I did have my doubts about it, though, um, the viability of ViewScan for a document-fed scanner. Not only document-fed, but also dual-sided. But I pressed on. First challenge, the cable. The cable that I use is five metres long and it's wrapped around various legs of three desks to connect the scanner beside me to the MacBook Pro that sat across the room. So it was an old style USB connector. You don't see these much anymore. You know the big square thing? Mm. It's a USB to A male to B male, apparently. Like I said, big square thing. Um, eventually I found one languishing in the back of a drawer. So first crisis was plugging it in. For some reason, I plugged it into the scanner 
I went over to the hub to plug it in, the USB hub, and it ejected every USB device I'd already got attached to the Mac. So, a great start. But once everything was connected again, we were up and running, and I installed ViewScan. Patting myself on the back for choosing the lifetime license 13 years ago. Not much has changed in terms of the interface in all those years. Uh, there's a standard view and a professional view if you've got the professional version. And the professional view gives you every option you could ever need. Big question, though, would it actually work? It did. It found the scanner. It correctly identified it as an S510M. Bear in mind here, I did not, I was not able to install a driver for it. So it did all of this itself. And away we went. The myriad options that you get within the application needed tweaking until I managed to replicate both the quality and the file size to be comparable to what I've had for the last 13 years using the original Fujitsu driver scanning straight into DevonThink Pro. But the good news, it's doable. Took me a while, but it's doable. The next issue was actually getting the scans to automatically appear in DevonThink Pro which I sat and thought about and thought, well, you know, I can't actually in instigate the scan from DevonThink. But it was easier than I expected once I actually thought about it carefully. Um, it's very easy. Just use the DevonThink Pro inbox folder and you set that as the destination for the scan. And before you know it, the scan's there, it's imported it. Now, there is a knock-on effect of that, and that's the file name. By default, the file name is set to increment with a date prefix. So you have the date at the beginning followed by an incrementally increasing number. And that would work, but for it to work, it actually is doing it live. It looks at the files that are in the destination folder. So if there's one, two, three, four and five, the next one will be six. It's, it's clever like that. But because I'm using the DevonThink Pro inbox, it actually moves the file into DevonThink Pro. Hence, all the files are named the same. Current date underscore 0001. Now, to be honest, it was no worse than previously. And you can change that in the settings, but there, there weren't many options. But needless to say, I wanted something in the file naming department it didn't seem to support. So I MacGyvered a solution. I saved the scan to an interim folder. So I didn't send it automatically to the DevonThink Pro folder. I sent it to this interim folder. I created a Hazel rule that renamed the file to my preferred style, which is the year followed by the month followed by the day, underscore followed by hours and minutes in 24-hour format. Then moved that renamed file into the DevonThink Pro inbox. Only major caveat so far is, Sometimes when I'm scanning multiple pages, it seems to create multiple files, which means I've then got to manually sort the pages out, which is just a time consuming waste of time to have to fix it. But my venerable Jurassic Park era scanner lives to fight another day, even on High Sierra and Mojave. So good call to all of you who suggested alternatives to fix my ageing scanner dilemma. I finally got round to it and it was a really worthwhile exercise. Now, I've got a follow up to a story that we covered last time. The one about Facebook and Google abusing their developer certificates and Apple coming down on them like a ton of bricks. Seems they weren't alone. And other enterprise level app developers are doing even worse things. 
putting out pirate versions of popular apps to bypass ads in ad-supported services, and worse. I feel there will be more revocations of said certificates ASAP. Don't you think they shouldn't be giving these out like smarties in the first place, though? They shouldn't be, no. No, I think they should be running more than basic checks on these things. I wonder how many they've actually handed out. I'm assuming a handful, but clearly not, or they'd be keeping a closer eye on them. Anyway, be warned. Be careful where you install your apps from. Don't be tempted with anything from outside the safety of the store without trusting the developer. It's bandit territory out there. And an update recently to one of your favourite apps. Yes, it's the third major revision in the last seven and a half months since the initial release of Pixelmator Pro back in November 2017. The first one that came out, do you remember this? It was called Whirlwind. 1.0 Whirlwind. Can't say I do. No, it must have slipped you by. Um, That was the one that came out, if you remember, around the same time that Scrivener 3 did. And I was all of a fluster, two two of my favourite apps, all coming out at the same time. Well, it was quite a while before they brought out 1.1 Monsoon. These names are fabulous, aren't they? Uh, It was the end of May uh, 2018. Then there was another bit of a gap before 1.2 Quicksilver came out in October last year. They seem to be picking up the pace of these updates, though, because the latest one is 1.3 Prism, which was released towards the end of January. And features added? Oh, yes, indeed, something Apple could learn from. They've um, Their layers system has acquired coloured tags. The layers have also acquired the ability to filter and search. I seriously wish Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo had those features for layers. It also acquired clipping masks and quick opacity and blend controls. You know, while Affinity apps seem to get more publicity, Pixelmator aren't sitting on their laurels. Pixelmator Pro was the App Store app of the year for 2018. And they've also got Pixelmator Photo for iOS in beta. So obviously the next thing to, you know, while while we're talking about new things, the next thing to consider was there's been much speculation regarding the original version of Pixelmator. So I did a bit of digging and the short version is doesn't look good in the long term. Without a complete rewrite at some point, it's going to have to give way to a Pixelmator Pro only future, which raised a, a subsequent question. What's the actual difference between Pixelmator and Pixelmator Pro? Now, I know you don't tinker with either of them to any great degree, do you? I don't. No. no. Do you know what the difference is? Uh, a few pounds or dollars, I would suspect. Well, actually, now you mention it, yes, there is a price difference. <laughs> to me, it's not confusing because, you know, I followed it along. But I think for a lot of people, it would be very confusing. And it's even more so because they're still actively selling both Pixelmator and Pixelmator Pro. But is that Apple's fault? I can always get things around to be Apple's fault, can't I? It's really, I think, because of the hardware requirements, which Pixelmator Pro needs metal. And there are many Macs out there just not capable of running the newer Pixelmator Pro. Now, I know I had the trouble that I had, you recall this tale, just trying to buy it on my testbed older Mac because I knew it needed a, a, it said it needed Sierra. So I updated to Sierra. It didn't mention anything else, but it still wouldn't have it. And it, it turned out to be because at that stage, I'm thinking there's something wrong here. But it was actually the machine that didn't support metal. But Apple didn't have a mechanism in place in the App Store to tell you that. So they just said, you need Sierra. 
But even with Sierra, you're going to need a specific Mac. Now, Pixelmator Pro has got a completely new editing ideology. And as I did a bit of digging around this, I found this comment that it's based on the developer's intuition rather than established practice or a conventional approach. Hmm. It's also based on a completely new code base, um, which they bring to this development of the new code base, 12 years experience with the old code base. It's got a completely new interface design, which is a single window, which I must admit, I do tend to prefer. There's an option to completely hide the interface, but I guess the biggest difference is it's completely non-destructive in its editing system. So, for instance, and I know this was something that Adobe demonstrated, um, but it took them years to add it. When you scale design elements, it's completely non-destructive. Now, what used to happen was you would scale a design element down, then change your mind and then scale it back up. But it wouldn't be this, the original quality. It would be all pixelated. Well, this is non-destructive, so that doesn't happen. They also built in new alignment and distribution tools. And um, a two sidebar view is really how the interface actually works. You'll doubtless remember this one because I did it with dogs. The, as you bring in elements, each element is, becomes a layer and the layers are named based on an AI system detecting the layer contents. I bet that's fun at certain magazines, but I mustn't lower the tone. <clears throat> now, this metal thing that it needs is because the painting engine is powered by metal. And that actually stems from the iOS version. Now, they also rebuilt the color adjustment system completely. It's got full raw support and there's presets. So if you think of things like I'm thinking you'll have used this Snapseed. Yeah. When you open an image at the bottom, there's like a tray of presets. So they've built that in. There is a preset system there. All of the effects are non-destructive. They've added in effects that aren't in the original Pixelmator because they are able to do more with the metal engine. So there's box, disc, spin blurs, bouquet, image pattern fills, you name it. And those presets allow batch processing to happen. So I recently processed about six images um, with the same look and I did it in Snapseed, but I did each one manually. If you'd have created a preset, so you, you sort out the first one, save it as a preset, then you can automatically apply to other images. So that would have saved some time. Uh, there's also redesigned vector brushes and reshaping tools. So they're very different. But as I started researching, if, if you ever gone down a rabbit hole and then wish you'd not bothered, because that's where All I the was. time. All yeah. the time. The reason I was in such a panic to buy the thing was that it was on launch price and the special launch price was $59.99. They did a whole blog post that explained their rationality to increase the price to $99.99. And the rationale for that was it's a premium app and it's going to be a premium price, which, yes, it's more like something like Final Cut or Logic Pro. So I thought, well, fair enough, if that's what you're doing with it and, and putting pro on it made you think, well, yep, that's where they're going. So I understood that. So I bought it at $59.99 and obviously I think they think they can get away with this because you never look again, do you? In fact, the app store can make it quite tricky. Instead of a price, it just says install, but you can find the price. Well, there was a back to school sale. This was about 10 months after it launched. $29.99. Hmm, interesting. 
Now it has a new permanent price of $38.99. So basically pricing roulette. I've, it was a bit bait and switch for my liking. Now they've played the we made a mistake card on their blog. Have you noticed how many companies do that? Mm. And people have said, oh, well, at least they've come clean and they've made clear their mistake. Really? That's all very well. But have they actually thought about those who paid fifty nine ninety nine and to be told it was a special launch price? How do they feel about that? Well, I can tell you how I feel about that. A lot less trusting of them in the future would be my thinking. So at the moment, there's two current versions. There's Pixelmator 3.8.1 and Pixelmator Pro 1.3.1. The reviews for Pixelmator Pro, not great. Surprisingly not great, to be honest. Um, there were reports of poor performance. Pixelmator have replied saying exactly what you would think. Oh, that's very unusual. Get in touch with us. But they're not isolated reports, though. I found at least three or four in, in the handful that I looked at. Also, several making the same point I considered as I was reading through the bit about the radical redesign of the interface. If you recall, they had, massive air quotes, built it by their intuition. But there were so many people saying that this just leads to a much steeper learning curve. While Photoshop might not be the ideal experience, it's the one millions are familiar with. And I'm happy enough hammering away with a new app until I master it. But it seems from these reviews, not many people are. There were lots of comments saying it's just unintuitive. Um, and some even suggested that they create, no, I bet they hate this, that they have a Photoshop compatibility mode. <laughs> Can you imagine you've built something by intuition? Gosh, you're absolutely positive it's far better to be told, you know that one you don't like? Could you build that in? But to me, it's a bit like a keyboard redesign. It might make logical sense to someone, but if you can already type on a QWERTY layout, be prepared to slow down to a crawl until you master it. And I think people just clearly don't like that. So what do you make of it? I can see the improvements, but it's not feature comparable with the original Pixelmator yet. And there is a steeper learning curve to it. And actually just just in use. I, I personally prefer Affinity Photo. But each to their own. It's a capable enough app. But that pricing thing, I know they're, they're bringing out, or there's talk of them bringing out a vector app called Vectormator. If they come out with some kind of um, launch price, I'm going to be very dubious. Very dubious indeed, which is the problem, isn't it? They lose trust. Whatever money they're not making because they overpriced it in the first place, you've now lost trust. We've lost my trust anyway. Uh, anyway, au revoir, Angela. The head of retail, now this is always an odd name, isn't it? Angela Ahrens, I believe, or as I call her, Browitch Replacement, has gone. It was all very sudden, wasn't it? Oh, yes, no gardening leave and much speculation, with unfortunately very little substance. Her role has been taken internally by Deirdre O'Brien, a 30-year Apple veteran. Never heard of her. Certainly not before the announcement. No, me neither. Which gave me reason to think of questions. Why didn't they give her the job when they took Browit on? Why not give her the job when they took Aaron's on? Because if she's the right person now, why wasn't she the right person then? Just a few points to ponder. Now, it got me thinking as well. 
I haven't visited an Apple store, physical Apple store, obviously I've spent thousands, but I haven't visited a physical Apple store since the release of the mid-2017 iPads, which says more about the changes of recent years than any of their figures could possibly say. Now, Aaron said she wanted the Apple stores to be the community hubs of their locations. Really? They already were. I was in there every week for three years, at least three years. I knew the staff. They knew me. It was a community. Now, I don't think the staff even know each other. The first person you approach never ever knows how to deal with whatever it is that you want. It takes an absolute age to get served and the genius bar is just an absolute joke. It's not somewhere, the Apple store at all, that I actually care to be anymore. So fix that, Deirdre, and then we'll talk. What do you think? Uh, what do I think? When, when I've been in the Apple store, and again, it's not been for a year and a half, it's just bits of kids, isn't it? It is. I mean, there was always the blue shirts, wasn't it? Blue shirts, yeah. The blue shirts were, were like your first... Port of call. First yeah. line who, who welcomed you in and asked you what you needed. But they did, when you told them what you were after or whatever, they did seem to have a clue where to send you. But honestly, do you remember when I... Uh, which one was that? Was that the one before? No, it was that one, wasn't it? You know, when we went in and we bought those three mm. iPads. And the pencil. They had no pencils, did they? And I said, right, OK, here's the situation. We want Apple Care on these devices. And if we buy the pencil with it, then, then it's covered. And if we don't, it's not. So can you find out from the store manager what you're going to do about that? And it was like, oh. She had no idea. Mm. Store manager. Hmm. I mean, and then that I think that was the same visit because you know, we've not been back. Wasn't that the same visit? You had your Apple Watch on. And she said, mm, no, 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 you didn't. No, that was it. You didn't have your Apple Watch. You had on some cheap knockoff Android thing. <laughs> uh, excuse me. It wasn't knockoff. It was cheap. But I purchased it legally. <laughs> it was a cheap thing that looked like an Android. But trust me on this. It didn't look like an Apple Watch. And she said, oh, you've got an Apple Watch. And I'm like, whoa. Whoa, if you can't tell that that's not an Apple Watch, this is scary. I mean, it didn't look anything like an Apple Watch, did it? Nothing like an Apple Watch. Yes. So, no, I, it's not been, our experiences have not been fantastic. Let's put it like that. But they were the community hub and everyone knew each other. And, and it, you can't fake that. You've, you've, it's got to be real for that to work. So oh, let's see how it goes. Am I confident? No. No. But never mind. Move along. Cheer no, me up we'll with the next on. story. Yes. News on Apple's Women's Health Initiative this week. I don't think they mean eating more vegetables. But Tim Cook has recently said that healthcare will be the area Apple makes the most important impact on humanity with. Nothing like understating it, is the Tim? Women's health, this is the quote sort of thing from him, but women's health has been an overlooked and underfunded area of healthcare. Even Apple has neglected it at times, like when it launched HealthKit in 2015, without any reproductive health tracking options. The company quickly corrected that problem and hopefully even more tools specifically for women are on the way. Mm. Can I ask a simple question? Go ahead. From that quote, 
Hopefully even more tools specifically for women are on the way. Like what? Seriously, like what? My poor mind is boggling. Not half as much as mine is. Do you know, they could make a much bigger impact on my health and well-being by making software that actually works and hardware that doesn't carp out every time I need to actually use it. That's before we even venture near the Russian roulette debacle the security updates have become. My blood pressure used to be normal, you know. Now they'd need specially calibrated equipment to even get near reading it. Mm, I can confirm that. I did do some research, though. I got curious. I found another article all about women's health apps. I had no idea it was such a huge business. $50 million annually, apparently. A trend that I have hitherto been blissfully completely unaware of. A state I fully intend to return to ASAP. Interesting reading, though. Mm, a long read, you mean? It was, actually. Um, interesting view on the fact that these apps aren't really for the benefit of women, but rather the male developers and investors behind them. Which sounds like that other app you mentioned being used to track women in Saudi Arabia. Have you noticed generally apps are seen as liberating us in some way? But with women-specific tech, it always seems to come down to controlling them rather than liberating them. Not that you didn't track me the other day on one of my rare ventures beyond the comfort of Matt Byte's headquarters. While that sounds sinister, in my defence, I was only tracking you so your dinner would be on the table when you got home. For crying out loud, Mike, were you wearing an apron when she got back as well? Nothing wrong with that. Well, as long as that was all he was wearing. Oh, my eyes. We heard from Graham this week. Thankfully, my request for him to share his Goodreader workflow didn't render him too shocked to get finger to keyboard. Mm, but I fear it was a close run thing. I'm suitably chastened, Graham. But yes, it was all about the new and somewhat surprising release of Goodreader 5. Do you know, I checked and I, and I bought this back in April 2010, which was around the time my iPad arrived. Well, I think it was released in April. I think I bought it in May. Didn't our iPads arrive middle of May? Can't remember. As soon as, well, it was the day the porridge set like cement. I remember it well. <laughs> Took me three days to chip it out of the bowl. <laughs> um, yeah, it was the. It was one of the first apps I bought, and we did. It, there was the version two and three and four. Eventually, version four was released in 2014. And we wondered if we'd ever get to see a version five because it was first mentioned back in April 2017. And I kept thinking, oh, that must be coming soon. Must be coming soon. There was such a long wait until the final release. But version five arrived end of, end of January. Rather unexpected. Now, it was free for me. I'm assuming that's because I already had it. But the price quoted is $5.99, and I'm assuming that's for new purchasers. But there's also this $5.99 in-app purchase thing for the Pro Pack. Now, we knew MacBiter Graham had been a long-time big fan of Goodreader, hence our request. And he did write in, sharing his workflow. Hi, Mike and Elaine. Here's my quick run-through on how I'm using Goodreader. There's probably something I've forgotten, and I don't use all its capabilities, but this works for me. I've been using Goodreader for seven years now, having read about it and watched a couple of screencast videos, even before I got my first iPad. It was the first app I bought, so I've always had a file system to play with right from the off. I pretty much live out of Goodreader. I sync a whole bunch of folders with Dropbox, and recently OneDrive as well. 
I save a lot of articles to Instapaper and later on I turn these into PDFs using ReadKit on the Mac. ReadKit's a newsreader which will connect to Instapaper, so I use the Mac's print to PDF function to retrieve the articles and stash them into several organised folders in Dropbox. These folders sync back to Goodreader, where of course I never read them again. This sounds like me, doesn't it? I also connect to Box and to the web space provided by my ISP. Remember when ISPs gave you web space? Mine still does. I don't need the Dropbox app or OneDrive, etc., as I can connect to them all via Goodreader. I've also set up one encrypted password protected folder for keeping bank statements, etc. But I've recently started using DevonThink for these, synced from the Mac. One feature of Goodreader I make use of is the fact that the downloads folder doesn't get backed up. Not its intended use, I know, but I have a whole folder structure in there containing about 25 gigs worth of videos. These videos all came from the iMac, so I don't want them being duplicated in local iPad backups for which I use iMazing, nor do I want them clogging up the iCloud backups. There are probably better ways of handling this, the iPad's TV app perhaps, but I don't want these videos filling my iTunes library either, so my way works fine for me. I also have a 2TB portable drive plugged into my router, which forms my rather modest NAS drive. I SMB into this via Goodreader, and I've sort of pensioned off my 10-year-old time capsule, but Goodreader can connect to this as well. The only thing I wish it could do is stream video from these external drives. To stream, I use an app called File Browser, which is a Goodreader alternative, although I prefer Goodreader. I subscribe to Don McAllister's screencasts online, but again, I don't want the videos filling up iTunes, so I copy the URL direct from the website and download straight into Goodreader, later copying them over to the NAS drive for keeping. By the way, I do keep the NAS drive backed up. Pretty much everything I download onto the iPad, I download or copy straight into Goodreader. I don't use any of the PDF annotation functions, but I do create the odd text document. It's also okay at reading Word documents from work, which Pages often seems to make a mess of. I do like the star feature, though, and I star manuals, etc. for accessing quickly. There are other ways of doing all this, I know, but it's what I started with and it works well for me. I don't use the iPad's Files app at all. In fact, I've never tried using the iPad without Goodreader or an alternative, and I don't know how I'd manage without it. I certainly would need a whole different workflow. Thanks for all the good work, guys. Graham. Well, as I said, I bought Goodreader back in 2010 and it was way ahead of its time functionally. It connected all the cloud services I worked with back then, and several of those are defunct now. Do you remember SugarSync? I do remember SugarSync. That's the one with the Blackbird, wasn't it? Mm. It was a pretty good system, that, but they just... I think they went off into the corporate world and said they were just closing down all the free accounts. The thing that surprised me was I never did the sync thing. I've always connected... I mean, the sync thing makes total sense, but I've always connected and downloaded just what I wanted on demand. So I've never bothered syncing folders unless I was going away. And even now, if I think of going away, I think, well, it's fine. I've got plenty of mobile data. So I still don't really synchronize much at all. But Goodreader does have file level sync, which is potentially very useful because the only alternative now, when I say file level sync, you can actually mark a single individual file to synchronize. 
The only alternative to that is folder level sync. And to do that, you'd need to create a folder structure that you otherwise wouldn't need just to accommodate the syncing stuff. I also noticed as I was reading Graham's piece, I don't use the encryption options either. I do have stuff in the downloads folder, but not that much of it. I tend to place stuff there when I download it local to the iPad. And if I decide the file something I want to keep, then I move it to one of the cloud providers of my choice. And I, I do tend to put it there as quickly as possible. Now, like Graham, I also use File Browser, which is a bit like the Files app, but on steroids. And I have used annotations. It The annotations are nice in that there's squares in there and lines, but they let me down once. And I've been really dubious ever since because I don't want to get to a point where I've annotated a 200 page book and then I save it, come back and everything's in the wrong place. The other thing with the annotations is they're not or they haven't been up to now as fluid as those in PDF Expert. But they have made huge strides and improvements in this new version, um, including support for Apple Pencil 2. So I'm going to carry on testing those annotations. But production wise, I must admit, I'm still using PDF Expert for that. With me, I used to use Goodreader just really as a repository for videos that I wanted to watch, mainly tutorial videos. So I would sync them really so that if I was somewhere with no internet connection, I could still watch them. But like you, I've since decided to use PDF Expert instead because all my books are in PDF Expert and I do like the annotations. Now, PDF Expert can sync files, including videos, from various cloud services. So to me, it actually makes sense to have everything under one roof. Now, it's always great to hear other people's workflows. So a huge thank you to Graham for sharing his workflow. And Goodreader is a fantastic app. If you're using it in any way, let us know and share your tips. Uh, one of the things we, we covered it, didn't we, in um, an after hour session, and I was having a look around with it and I, I tried to do something earlier that day. And what I wanted to do, I thought was incredibly simple. I've just got some images in a cloud service and I wanted to save them, if you recall, to the Photos app, my camera roll, basically. And I couldn't find a way to do it. I had move options that didn't move. They actually copied, but they weren't putting them in the Photos app. And I was convinced I'd already done it a good few months ago, but I was convinced I'd done it. Anyway, it wasn't having it. In the end, in desperation, I thought, I'm gone, Goodreader. So I went into Goodreader, connected to the same cloud service I'd just been in, in the Files app, selected the images, and at the bottom there was an option saved to the Photos app. And I thought, why can't the built-in thing do that? So sometimes, even if it, you don't have an entire workflow set up, there's just one thing that it can do that the others can't. And um, you know, use it for that as well. So it's a very, very good app and definitely worth looking at. And double do's today on the app review front as we take a look at Betazip. Now, this is an app that I must admit I do use. I use about 1% of it. So I'm going to let you do this one. Can I, can I spill the beans a little bit more? Yes. I said, do you use this? He said, no. And I said, well, what, what do you use? thinking it's not like Mike to go for the built-in thing, you know, where there's no interface. He said, can't remember what it's called, but it's not that. I said, oh, fair enough then. He said, I'll go and have a look. And then he came back and said, 
It's better zip. I said, oh, is it really? <laughs> yes, but like I said, I only use like one bit of it. Okay, we'll let you off. We'll let you off. Well, to start with, why do you need anything beyond the defaults that macOS already has via the Archive app? And the truth is, you might not. Because the Archive app ships with macOS, it's free, it's integrated into the macOS interface. It's not obvious, but you can do a lot more with it than just zipping and unzipping. Having said that, I've not been in and changed the settings either. Um, but that's primarily because it's been a nightmare to actually find the app before now. In Mavericks or earlier, it's in System Library Core Services. On Yosemite or later, it's in System Library Core Services Applications. But it's made a whole lot easier if you're using Alfred Launchbar or Spotlight. Just type Archive Utility and wherever they've decided to put it this week, you'll find it. By opening it, you would open the app and you, you may sit there and think there's no interface. And there isn't. It just sits there showing you a menu. But there are options in there. There's expansion options and compression options. So within the expansion options, you can specify a saving location. So when you've expanded a zip, where do the files go? Now, obviously, by default, they are in the same location as the zip file. But if you wanted to have zip content, you know, the content of a zip file put in a specific location all the time, you can do that. I haven't changed that one. There's also options for what to do with the zip file after you've expanded it. So, for instance, you could set an option in there to always send it straight to the trash. Not that I'd recommend that, would you? No. No dicey option, that, but mm. it, it's available for you. You can also choose to reveal the expanded file in the finder. Um, and there's a rather curious option, which is keep expanding. And what it means is, I'm sure you've had these files. You get a zip file and within it, maybe it's got fonts in it. Within it, there's six zip files, each one a different font. And then maybe within those files, there's more zip files for the italic version and the bold version. Well, keep expanding allows nested unzipping, which sounds grand and it should save you quite a bit of time. But have you ever had one of those files that's a zip file and then it unzips to a raw file? And when you unzip that, it zips, it goes back to a zip file and that way madness lies. So be careful with the option, but it's there if you need it. On the compression front, again, you can specify a location for created archives. So maybe you're running around making backups of things and you would like all the archives you've created in one specific place, maybe on a backup drive. You could set it to do that. There are archive formats, but they're very limited. There's options for what to do with the original files after you've compressed them. So you could, we talked about on the expansion side, trashing the zip file. You could also set this to trash the original files. I'm not recommending that, but you could. And then there's an option to reveal the archive when you've created it within the finder. So there are actually a few options there. So given all that, what does better zip give you extra? Well, it supports a huge range of archive formats. What I find better, though, is the ability to edit existing archives without expanding them. So if I've already got a zip file and I think you've missed one file, instead of trashing the thing and starting again, I can just add it. So there's a, a proper interface to it that looks like a little finder window. 
You can remove the dot files to create PC friendly archives, which is something I do all the time, because if I ever send anything off to a client on a PC, I know I'm instantly going to get contacted. What are all these files that start with a dot? And they are Mac files. And obviously on a Mac, a file that starts with a full stop is hidden, but not on a PC, unfortunately. Uh, you can edit the archived files in an external app and have better zip update the archive all without actually unzipping the thing, which I think is pretty amazing. That is one of my uh, all time favourites. You can split an archive into specific sized chunks as well. Do you remember floppies back in the day? I remember them well. Uh, I used to do that. I used to do that all the time. 1.44 um, meg. Yes. And what you do is you say you say to it, OK, there's there's five meg. Oh, five meg of files. I don't have many files that are smaller than five meg these days. So I've got five meg of files and they won't go on this 1.44 floppy. So I tell it to break the archive down into 1.4 size chunks and put it on five floppies and then reassemble it at the other end. It's a bit like teletransportation, really, isn't it? Someday, <laughs> though. Somebody's going to mail in now and talk out 720k floppies. I had those on my Amiga. Did you? I did. Yep, you you had single-sided double density and something. They're the ones. Do you know, <laughs> I wanted to mention the company that I got them from because they made branded <laughs> floppy disks, but you know what it's I called and I'm going to have thinking. to save that for an after hours. But it involved a chicken. <laughs> and now you've put me right off now. Where was I up to? Um, oh, yes, editing in, in external applications uh, and, and separate chunks. Uh, one thing that they said you could do with it, and I thought, I never tried that, but I instantly gave it a go. Um, EPUBs. An EPUB is a special type of zipped archive, so you can actually delve into them and extract content from them, which I thought was brilliant. Um, you can also extract images and audio from PDF files. Mm, nice. And flash files. Remember those? Just about. Have you noticed there was an update out to the Flash Player the other day and it's now called Adobe Pepper Flash? Not noticed, but one of the companies that I do my, my webinars for, they use a system that requires Flash. So every time I log into the meeting, I have to click, click here to enable Flash Player. Oh, I've got that thing installed in Chrome. Now, the other thing is, you can quick look preview individual files in an archive without extracting them first. That's actually even more use than editing them to me, because if I've got a, you know, a largish archive and I'm thinking this is going to take two, three minutes to open and I only want to look at one file, you can quick look preview inside without extracting the archive. That's clever. There's also encryption, which is AES-256. It integrates with the keychain which is also clever, even cleverer. It's got a password generator in it, so it can suggest passwords for you and then save those passwords to the keychain. It integrates with the Finder um, in two ways, via the services and via Finder extensions. So I hadn't set that up and I don't know why, but I did. Once I was looking at it with a view to reviewing it, I did. It's, it's very handy, that. It can also have presets for both creating archives and choosing what to do with them as you extract them. Those presets are such a time saver. Uh, I've got a preset to lose the dot files and I've created a couple of other presets as well uh, in terms of different file formats. 
All you need to do with that, instead of hitting a save button, there's a drop down next to the save button. You click that and all your presets are listed. So you can create instantly different types of archives from the same window. You can also, when you're extracting an archive, have filtering in place. So there's an option not to extract CRUD files in the first place. So you don't have to extract these dot files and all, um, oh, what's the other one, the repository files and stuff like that. You can just say don't extract those. So you set it up so it just ignores them. It's got full Apple Script support and it's integrated with Alfred LaunchBar, DropZone and Hazel. I've used it with Alfred and DropZone and Hazel. I'm presuming the launch bar thing is very similar to Alfred. But it means what I can do is I can select some files on the desktop. I hit the control key twice, which brings up Alfred, in a mode where it loads those files into Alfred. And then I just type archive and, and it makes me a zip file. You can add comments to the zip files. So if you, that's actually more use than I thought it was originally, because I never bothered with that. But once we started using Google Drive, putting comments on things, I wanted to put them elsewhere. And having comments on my archives was actually very handy. You can also test archives before you extract them to make sure they're not damaged. So you don't want to do a long extraction of gigs and gigs worth and then find out it doesn't work in the end. So it can do a quick test to make sure it can actually extract it. Now, you may think, no, no, don't need it. Never going to look at that. You may actually have had it and be completely unaware because do you remember Leopard? I remember Leopard. Of course I remember Leopard, yes. Leopard introduced Quick Look. And one of the things that we all wanted in a Quick Look thing was to Quick Look inside zip files. Well, the company that make Better Zip are the company who provided the Quick Look generator for zip files. Now, the good news is you can download Better Zip. And you can take it for a test run. And if it's not for you, that's fine. The Quick Look Generator will continue to work free of charge. The, fire, the, the app itself, no, you need to pay for that if you want to use the other features. But the Quick Look Generator will continue to work. I kept the Quick Look Generator thing, the actual file. I can't remember what the extension was. But you had to put it in, in a specific folder called Quick Looks in the system somewhere. You dropped it in. And that was where you put your extensions for Quick Look. And I kept it for years and years. They then released new versions of Better Zip and they included a much better improved Quick Look generator. And in the end, I bit the dust and went for it. <laughs> and it is. It's very, very good. So you can actually interact with the files straight from Quick Look as well. It is $24.95 and you can install it on up to five Macs. If you have an older version, that's always worth checking because you never know what you've had in a bundle and not installed. It's $9.99 for an upgrade. And better still, if you have a set app subscription, which we don't, but if you do, it's included in there as well. So I actually think even at the $25 mark, that is definitely worth it to me. I think it, it provides a lot of functionality over and above what you already get. I think there's a lot of functionality in there over and above I already use. <laughs> over and above what you knew about mm. but now you know about it so uh, there will be a test for mike at some point i will i will give him a couple of weeks and then we will come back and we will revisit that and see how much he's using about two have a shrewd idea what that'll be mm. now two, not much two percent <laughs> anyway should we move on so on to the fourth part of beneath the surface 
And last time I talked about some of the apps that I installed and the software that I use, and I'm going to continue with that today. So first up is OneDrive, one of several cloud storage services that I use. On my Mac, I have installed the OneDrive Sync client, and this allows me to have a copy of the files that are stored in OneDrive also stored locally on my Mac. Now, if you're wondering, why do I do that? It saves me opening a browser and logging into OneDrive. I have a OneDrive folder on my Mac and files can be accessed and managed through the Finder. And what the OneDrive Sync client does is it keeps the local copy and the remote copy in sync. So if I edit a file stored locally, when it's saved, the copy gets uploaded to the cloud. And any new files that I save to the local OneDrive folder or subfolders, they are automatically uploaded to the cloud as well. I actually have about 300 gigs worth of data in my OneDrive account, but I don't want to take up 300 gig of disk space on my Mac. So I actually use OneDrive's selective sync feature. And what this does is lets me choose which folders to sync. So I have about a third of that 300 gig. I have about 90 gigs worth of files synced to the Mac. And the folders that I've synced are the ones that contain the files that I use most often. Makes sense. A lot of the stuff in my OneDrive is archive stuff or stuff that I just access once in a while. Now, when I got the Surface, I decided not to install the OneDrive client. I decided to take advantage of OneDrive's files on demand feature. And with files on demand, there are no local copies of the files. What files on demand allows you to do is to access your remote files via File Explorer, which is the Windows equivalent of Finder. I can open File Explorer and I can then navigate to the OneDrive folder. And what I see is what looks like a list of files, but they're not the actual files. They are shortcuts to files which are stored in the cloud in OneDrive. As long as I have an internet connection, the file can be opened, I can make my changes, and I can save the changes straight back to the cloud. Now, if I do need local copies of the files, I can then mark individual files as being what they call always available. Files on Demand was launched in September 2017 but it was limited to Windows and it took 12 months before they made it available to Mac, but only if you have Mojave. Although with Cloud Mounter, you don't actually need it. So what I've done is I've created a Cloud Mounter connection to my remote OneDrive, and that way I can access all my files via the Finder without having to sync. And that saves me 90 gig of disk space too. Do you know, that files on demand made me very nearly switch to Windows just for that. It was around the time I was using OneDrive as my primary cloud storage. And I think I'd seen it. It must have been on a machine you had from work. And to see all the files that were available in the cloud, but not have them taking up disk space was just amazing. Um, I know I can selectively sync and at the time it would have been with Dropbox, but I didn't want to get involved with a selective sync because the danger with that is I can't do a search on, on my local machine and find all the files I've got in relation to something. 
when I've elected not to selectively sync them. So this files on demand was just amazing. I reached the stage where I thought, OK, I've got and then this was Microsoft who at the time gave you unlimited storage on OneDrive. They soon changed their minds. But it was OK. I've got this unlimited storage. I intend to transfer everything I own up into OneDrive. It makes sense to have access to this files on demand. And if, if it's only on Windows, which at the time it was, I'm going to do that. I was checking prices for an Uber spec'd out Windows desktop when they had the unmitigated temerity to remove the best feature ever. I think that was about four years ago ish, four, five years ago. I'm trying to remember. Was mum here then? <laughs> I don't know what she'd have said about me going back to Windows. I think it was about four years ago then. Now they've added it back. It's like playing chicken with features, isn't it? Now, luckily, in the vacuum between thinking this was a good idea and then realising it wasn't because they'd ripped it out, I found a whole better alternative system. And I'm going to share that in a future episode. But I very nearly bought a Windows machine. Can you imagine if I had and within the week they'd been the feature? You wouldn't have been happy. Oh, tears before bedtime. Mm. Or a new doorstop, depending on how you look at mm. it. Major tantrums. <laughs> anyway, what else did I uh, install onto the Surface? Well, one of the first things I installed was Snagit, which I use for taking screenshots and annotating and editing them. Windows has the snipping tool, which is a built-in app that lets you take screenshots, but that has no editing or annotating functionality. And Snagit, as well as doing screenshots, lets you do screen recording, so video. Uh, it lets you take a screenshot of an entire web page and not just the area visible on screen. And it has some neat uh, editing features, including the ability to easily crop out uh, from within the middle of the image, something I use a lot not just from the edges. It's actually available for both Mac and Windows, and now the functionality is very, very similar on both platforms. We've actually used it for many years. We used it on Windows before we switched. I use it at work, and I also use it on the Mac. Now, if you're looking for something similar on the Mac, uh, have a look at something called Grab which is free and it's part of the uh, the OS, but it's not as much functionality. Something we'll actually be looking at on uh, an upcoming After Hours. You'll find it in the Utilities folder. I'm not going to say any more than that. As I say, I don't want to spoil the demo. But uh, um, You need to mention, though, that that's Mojave only, um, not Mojave. It's everything but Mojave. It's not there in Mojave. No, they've added uh, a new a new super duper snipping tooly type thing in uh, in Mojave. Do you know that's got a name and there's an icon and I can't for the life of me remember what it is because I've only got one machine on Mojave. Snipping tool, but whatever it is, it's Command Shift Five. Snipping tooly <laughs> thing. That thing. <laughs> yeah, called it snipping tooly thing. Um, I I I bought uh, Snagit for the Mac last year and the license allows two installs, so the second installs on the Surface. Ah, you need to make a point there as well. If you buy a license, you get two installs, don't you? Yeah. And if you buy the license direct from them, it's cross-platform. But you can buy it from the App Store, and that's not cross-platform. Luckily, I bought it from them. That's because you knew you were going to need it cross-platform. Um, it used to be... That, that's because you told me to. <sighs> yeah, you actually did. You were told. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Uh, 
Um, no, I was going to say it used to be a little bit cheaper in the App Store because of that. And now it's not. But of course, from the App Store, you can install it however many times you like, give or take. Well, according to Apple. Um, but with them, it's activated. So you only get the two. Oh, well. Decisions, decisions, basically. It's enough for me. Surface and <laughs> iMac. <laughs> yes, well, it's not for me, is it? No, it's not. Um, Camtasia was another thing I installed, although I was using ScreenFlow for editing uh, video. As you know from a previous show, we switched to Camtasia uh, in the summer last year. Camtasia is also cross-platform, so it made sense to install it on the Surface. And I can record video on the Surface and I can edit on the Mac, which, which is great because uh, it, I've got the much bigger screen. Can I just make a point? Yeah. Another one. Go on. Uh, all, all that I said about Snagit applies to Camtasia. You can buy it in the App Store, but you can't install it in Windows if you buy it from the App Store. So ditto what I've just said. Move along. Can I just say I've still only got two devices? So those two licenses will do me. Affinity Photo. Um, another one of your recommendations. I needed an image editor, obviously. Um, I didn't want to rely on the built-in thing in Windows called Photos or something. Um, so I installed Affinity Photo. Again, that is cross-platform and um, I, uh, I use it, or use is a very loose term, I think, use it on the Mac. Um, my very basic uh, image editing requirements. But again, I already had a, a Windows license for it, so that made the decision much, much easier. You know why you had a Windows license, don't you? Because I bought it for that big hulking laptop thing. Oh, wrong answer. Because I told you to. <laughs> That's what I said at the start. You told me to, yes. There's a, there's a theme actually, running through this, isn't No, there? if you remember, <laughs> yeah. they brought out Affinity Photo on the Mac and I think Windows at the same time. And they had a launch price on it that they actually stuck to. It was twenty nine ninety nine. <laughs> they did put it up to forty nine ninety nine. So I said, you might as well have that for your Windows machine while you're at it. So you bought it while it was cheap. That yeah. cost you a fortune, don't I? Uh, you do. Just like, yes, just like but Graham. can I just anyway. say I never drag you into a shoe shop? No. No. But uh, but that's it for this beneath the surface so next time i'll talk about the accessories that i've got for the device the uh, the keyboard and the pen and one or two other things but uh, it's not only software that we're looking at today because we had arrival of new hardware a few weeks back at macbytes hq <gasps> oh yes a new projector no less now i have to say we already had one um it was a local tech group that we ran back in 2005 we blew 80% of the annual budget one year on our own projector. It was an Epson, cost about £800. And given the time, it worked well enough. Um, 800 by 600 dimension. You could, on a good day, get 1024 by 768. But it was only at a push on a good day with the wind in the right direction. I think it had just VGA input, didn't it? I think you're right. I think it came, well, it came with like a roll, um, a, a fabric roll that you unrolled and it had all the adapters known to mankind in it. And I think there was possibly a SCART one in it, but it certainly didn't do HDMI or anything like that. There was no audio, but it did the job. So, October, we went out to deliver a presentation. I think the first thing we noticed were the colours were shocking, weren't they? Yeah, because obviously we'd taken a keynote file and we knew what colours these photos were in this file and the colours were shocking. 
It wasn't an ideal environment, but to be honest, whenever you're presenting, it never is. So we did. We coped with it that day. We got home and we found this projector and it was on offer. And I said, got to be worth a punt. It was less than £45. I think it was £44.50. So we went for it. It arrived the next day. I opened it with trepidation, to be honest. I thought, you know, given the price of it, this is going to be a joke. It's going to be like a toy. But it looked fine. All the necessary bits and pieces were included. So I tried it with very, very low expectations. Basically because of the price. Also, the picture quality of our original expensive Epson model. But I got it turned on. And I was blown away. The picture quality was fantastic. And the only way I tested it was just in the office against a wall in daylight. This thing was light as well. It was handy to, to use. It had a million ports on it. It had the standard VGA. In fact, it had everything from standard VGA through to HDMI to support for direct connection of USB pen drives. There was a slot to put SD cards in. It was stunning. We loved it. Then in December, we were heading out to give a rerun of that presentation from October. Now, we didn't, for this rerun, really need to take our own projector. They had an all singing, all dancing monster projector suspended from the ceiling. In fact, a certain crew member had the bald temerity to question just how much tech I was actually intent on taking with us. It wasn't me. You know me better. I have more sense. Clearly I don't, as it was me. Well, we got there. I'd already had the foresight to rope in the on-site expert, given that the last time we'd used this venue, some idiot had locked the remote control in a cupboard for security. I mentioned this thing was on the ceiling, didn't I? Well, neither him nor the five blokes that got involved could persuade this projector to play ball at all. While they stood pointing at it and scratching their chins, making what they considered to be sensible noises, I quietly unpacked the newly arrived baby projector and within two minutes we were ready to go. Lesson to be learnt? Bigger isn't always better. And you can never take too much tech on an Outward Bounds adventure. So the projector in question, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce its name. I'd say Zanpad, but it's X U A N. PAD. And it's a mini projector. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Its proper price was $48.99, but I got it for $44.50. Uh, for the technically minded who need to know these things, because pretty much doesn't mean much to me. I've no idea what the lumens on the other one were. But on this one, it's $2,400. Um, it has a large projection screen and it goes from 32 inches to 176. It says that the bulb has got a 55,000 hour life span. Now, given the price of the Epson one, I was glad to hear that. It also works with uh, TV boxes. You can plug an Amazon Fire TV stick in, Chromebook, PCs, laptops, tablets, Blu-ray players. I told you there's an SD card slot, a USB flash drive slot. You can plug in media players, iPad, iPhone, Android, you name it. You've got a two year warranty. It included the remote control and even the batteries were in there. I thought that was pretty impressive. But then I discovered there was an AV cable in it, a HDMI cable and a three-way adapter. Now, the three-way adapters were £18 on their own. 
So I think it was HDMI, VGA and something else. And I can't remember what the something else was. DVI probably. Oh, yes, it could be DVI. That's one I've got, no. the Surface. No, it could be that one then. Yeah. Um, file format wise, it pretty much supports anything we've thrown at it. So um, if you've got like a drive plugged in, it can use MPEG 1, 2, 4, AVI, MOV, MKV, DivX, VOB, you name it. It play probably play a coaster, wouldn't it? As we used to say. Now I'd bought this thing and it had arrived before I read this next bit. Thankfully, because if I'd have read this next bit, I think I'd have probably talked myself out of it. It says underneath it, not recommended for PowerPoint, Word, Excel, or business presentations. Um, recommended to use this projector in a dark environment. Um, you'll need a lightning cable to HDMI. Da, 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 da. But basically, it was this thing there that said PowerPoint, Word, Excel, or business. If I'd have read that, I would have been very dubious whether I would have gone for it at all. I might still have gone for it on the basis I could probably send it back if it was absolutely dire. But it's complete garbage. All we've used it for is PowerPoint and Keynote, and it's absolutely fine. I have no idea why it says that on it at all. I know we're comparing it to our venerable Epson, but that was still a very expensive projector in its day. And we've just been quoted £380 for a replacement bulb for ours, so that won't be happening. Um, the bulb being the Epson bulb. So I just don't think it's worth the extra expense. And I think at that price, I'm not too concerned when we're out either. If anybody drops it, I'm not worried. You know, with the Epson, it was like, don't touch that. Don't touch that at all. You know, you were concerned about it. But quality wise, I, you may find a more expensive, more modern projector is a huge improvement over this cheap one. But for what we want it for and for what I suspect most people would want it for, I think it's absolutely fine, don't you? I mean, you've got really expensive stuff at work. How does it compare? It's, you know, for, for what we paid, it's a great piece of kit. Exactly, exactly. So we talked about this and we actually demoed it, didn't we, in an after hours. And Paul in Spain, formerly Basingstoke, long story, uh, bought one. He has absolutely no need for it and no idea what he's going to do with it, but he, he enjoyed the review so much he went and bought one. <laughs> We like that, don't we? We do. I like that. Yes. yes. No, I'm I'm very pleased that we actually got that. Um, I just think it's an amazing piece of kit for, for the price. And, and ignore the bit about no good for presentation because it's need rubbish. It's absolutely rubbish. It's a marvellous piece of kit. So we come to the last part of the map. It's 10. We're going to have a cheer for that. <laughs> I'm nearly pegged out with exhaustion, <laughs> but yay! <laughs> <laughs> It was. It's our look back at the the ten Apple operating systems since we switched to a Mac in two thousand and six. Now, I know there's been eleven, but we're not counting Mojave because it's the current one. So in this show, we're focusing on ten point thirteen High Sierra, Triskaidekaphobia, fear of the number thirteen. I'm afraid of them all these days. This is the one that's still used on all our production machines. The sole exception is the newly arrived MacBook Air. It's a sad state of affairs when the safest, if not the cheapest way, to test a new OS is to actually buy a new Mac. Mm, I've not taken the Mojave plunge yet. Whilst the apps that I'm using are still supported on High Sierra, I'm actually reluctant to upgrade. So at this rate, 
I'll leave it until the next Tabby Cat Mountain Range or National Park or whatever they choose to call it comes out. But back to High Sierra. It was released in September 2017, having been announced at WWDC in June that year. And as with any OS upgrade, there were a few new features and some new functionality. Now, for this one, many of the new features were under the hood, like the new file system, AFPS, which stands for Apple... No! No! Try again! Not AFPS! APFS! That's the one! I'll try reading my own handwriting next time. <laughs> Apple File System, APFS, is a file system designed for sol solid-state drives, and according to Apple, it's safe, secure, and optimised for modern storage systems. Can we just take a break for 30 seconds while I laugh my socks off? <laughs> it, Carry on. It features native encryption, safe document saves, stable snapshots, and crash protection. Plus... <laughs> Sorry, it was a bit about stable. You said the word stable. Oh, my. Stable and Apple in the same sentence. Yeah. Plus, it brings performance improvements. But there were some visible changes, too. For example, the low battery notification icon. Well, it got a flatter modern look. Well, that's a great one, you know, for us batteryless iMac users. The attention to detail. Yeah. If not features. One that I didn't know about, but then I never use it. You can now lock your Mac using the keyboard shortcut, Command, Control and Q. Which you tried and were promptly stunned when your Apple Watch unlocked it again. Yes, first time that's actually worked. The Photos app got an updated sidebar and some new photo editing features. One day I really must open the Photos app. Might even be in my lifetime. Hopefully our listeners can tell by our sarcastic tone how enthralled we are at this operating system. <laughs> the laugh of it is this is the one we're actually using. It's I don't just know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It sits thing. there in the background, doesn't it? Um, the main... Annoying me. Yes, it sits there in the background, annoying me when it tries to update. Don't get me going on updates. No, no, no. no. The Mail App's Compose window can now be used in split-screen mode. If I start snoring, just kick me. This lets you see the new message in the inbox on the screen at the same time. The Notes app... I noticed you're very, very quiet now. Have you gone to sleep? <laughs> I'm sure you said the Notes app supported tables on the uh, last show. Did I? Oh, well, I'm pretty confident you did, but well, now you can pin notes as well. You can, you can pin notes so that your important ones remain at the top of the list. Am I just being overly cynical here? But no. honestly, yeah, you don't know what I'm going to say yet. You know, putting tables in notes, I can see a benefit. Pinning notes to the top, I can see a benefit. But it, honestly, can people write in and just put me out of my misery here and let me know one thing? How If you use the Notes app or Evernote, how many notes have you got? Because honestly, the features they're adding, if you've got more than 50, you've no chance of finding anything. But am I just being cynical? No. Mm. No. It we need wasn't... to talk about what I actually use, which is Notion. Notion mm. is just to die for. We'll leave that for another episode. Oh, can't I talk about Notion instead? Something I'm actually No, because use? I haven't finished my review. 
But th- I need I need them t- to tell me how many notes they've got because Let's I'm pretty talk. sure in Notion I must have thousands. Right. Well, let me finish and it works, and I can find things. And I just want to know, you know, the features that they've added into Notes all very well. If I've got five notes, how many notes have you got? I need to know these things. Right, carry on. It wasn't all new features, though. Did you know that the FTP and Telnet command line programs were removed? In other words, Apple continued their feature removal program. See, I knew you'd wind me up. I was quite happily thinking about Notion there and being very happy with it. What do you do? You remind me about the, the artist formerly known as iWork. Do you know, I was actually looking at some notes today from 2012 when I did a session on pages. And one of the demos was Mail Merge. Now, don't get me going. Thing with Apple is, I, if they take features away, and I live long enough to see them brought back, fabulous. But how many years has it been since the stuff disappeared from my work and there's no sign of it? So I'm not happy now. You've reminded me now. So what else? Oh, yes, Siri. Siri got a more natural and expressive voice. I'm already natural and expressive enough. Thank you very much. Yes, Siri. OK, so uh, that completes our look at the 10. So as well as writing in and telling us how many uh, notes you've got in Evernote or notes or whatever app you use, let us know what your favourite Mac OS was and why. I know what Carrie's going to say. I reckon it was OS 9. Panther. No, OS 9, the original. Ah. Before OS 10. <laughs> Before it all started go- going downhill. Mine was Windows 98. Oh, no, no, no. Windows 2K. Or was it? No, it was what 98. Was after two, what was the one after 2K? Vista. Oh, God, no, it wasn't that one. <laughs> it wasn't that one. No, Windows 98 had just enough technology to get you connected to the internet and the rest of it just stay out of the way. Windows it was 98 great. was the Teletubbies wallpaper. I, I, If I had to choose a Mac one, it would be Snow Leopard. Yeah. It fixed agree. all the stuff they broke in Leopard and it, it was the zenith. It's all been downhill ever since. I'd agree. But while we've been talking about these old OSs, um, I had a complete nightmare of attempting to try and download one of these things. Uh, just trying to get a full installer. Apple just make it worse and worse and more difficult. The day will come when it's impossible to even turn on a Mac without written acquiescence from Tim Cook personally. And that's ignoring the expiring certificates of a few months ago as well. It's tough enough without that. Now, the situation is you can't download a full version of Mojave, especially on Mojave. What it downloads is a stub of the file that it needs, and it uses the stub file to request the full file once you've started the installation, which is fine if you're trying to install it. But how am I supposed to make a boot disk from that? Short answer is, you're not. The long answer is, there is a way. In fact, there are two. Buckle up for a heck of a ride, though. The first option is to use a bit of a hack. If you install an app called DOS Dude, I'm liking that name, you know, DOS Dude. Um, it's an app that aids Hackintosh makers to download, well, to, to install macOS on their Hackintoshes. There's an option within that to just download a full version of Mojave. That's the route I'm about to take. Not done it yet, though. We'll report back on that. Um, the second option is a little bit more precarious 
for which read be very careful with this one. Download the minimal installer and start the install. And then play whack-a-mole with the installer to stop it between it downloading the remainder of the installer file, which is 6 gig, and starting the install. If you can manage to do that, you'll then need to run through a range of terminal commands to create what used to be the download. You used to be able to download the entire 6 gig file. Once you've done that, you will have the original 6 gig file and you can use that to create a boot disk. It's seriously that difficult that by the time I'd investigated all the ramifications, I'd forgotten what I was actually trying to do. Eventually, I remembered I was just trying to make a Mojave boot disk as a backup. Then I got thinking about upgrading one of my Macs to Mojave, the one without a functioning internal SSD. And the most logical thing to do would have been to install Mojave on an external SSD. Having removed the currently functioning High Sierra SSD. And it made sense to me to do that with a USB drive. Clearly makes no sense at all to Apple. Did I mention Timmy needs a shot of reality right up the I don't think he has the required interface for that. No, he wouldn't have. Well, not without a dongle anyway. So on with the latest good but gone, and it's Wiretap Anywhere, which is an app I never used. No, but I did. It was an app that had an essential feature set for virtual audio routing. It allowed the creation of virtual audio devices on your Mac. So, for example, you could create a virtual device that was the output from Skype and iTunes. Or you could capture the audio of an app and record it in isolation from the system sounds. Now, it was critical for the system I created back then for audio podcasts, webinars and training videos. I actually hadn't had the app that long when Lion came out and promptly broke it. Now, there was promises of it being upgraded for full compatibility. It was made by Ambrosia Software and nothing ever came of any update. Now, people were screaming in self-righteous indignation, especially given the price. It was $129 and, you know, I hadn't had it that long and many other people hadn't had it that long. Eventually, after living without it for quite a while, I found an alternative that served the same purpose. And that one was called Sound Siphon. I was quite excited when I found it and I tested it on my iMac. It worked perfectly. So I bought it. Then I put it on my MacBook Air. And it crashed the entire Mac every single time I used it. At least it was predictable. So I did use it on my iMac, but I was never really happy with it because I could not get it working on the MacBook Air. Now, you might be thinking that's sounding a little bit like Soundflower. And of course, there was Soundflower. But that is limited to a single virtual device. So when Sound Siphon wasn't working properly, I did use that on the MacBook Air. And I managed to struggle along with Soundflower for a while. But just as I was giving up hope of anything that was just worked, I got a mail from Rogue Amoeba. Now, they're the people who make Audio Hijack. They were announcing a beta program for a new app that promised the same functionality. That app became Loopback. And it's the perfect replacement for Wiretap Anywhere. How many years on are we, though, from Lion? Quite a few. Quite About a few. Seven, eight. Uh, and Loopback's been out for maybe two years, something mm. like that. 
Now, we demonstrated Loopback because uh, there was a new version out on the second after hours show. And it was a full demo of the system that we use for MacBytes, which I'm not 100% convinced Mike understands. So, but, but do have a look at it. <laughs> so I'll put a link into that one. Uh, but back to Wiretap anyway. I went and, and investigated. There's still a page on Ambrosia's website dedicated to it with a purchase button. Thankfully, it doesn't go anywhere, but it's still there. Uh, they do have another well-known app as well. So you remember Snaps Pro X, Snaps Pro 10? Yeah, I remember that one. That's still going. And actually, it's, it, it reports to be compatible with Sierra. So they're still a couple of years behind. That was the first app. Uh, it was the one that we were recommended, wasn't it, from the Mac group? Yeah. We were inquiring as to what we could use to record the screen. And that was like the standard. I know uh, Photoshop user TV used to use it. And you'd have this mouse trail as soon as you move the mouse. So basically, you could record the screen, but don't move the mouse that often. <laughs> it wasn't great. Thankfully, ScreenFlow came out and solved all of those problems. But yes, that was a good but gone that um, it was good when it worked. And it did work, you know, until Lion and then the whole thing stopped working. But Loopback solved my problem. So that's a sad one that that went, actually. But at least I've got something else. So I'm happy. And that's it. That's it for this episode of Matt Bites. So, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions. Send us your comments. Send us your queries. Tell us how many notes you've got. And uh, what was the other thing we wanted to know? Oh, which was your favourite OS? Yes. Send it all. Send it to macbytesuk at gmail.com or use the contact form on the website or send us an audio file. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at uh, twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until the next time, this has been Mike and Elaine bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So are you ready then? Ready for what? Your new role. What new role? The additional health tracking stuff that's coming your way. Oh, that OBGYN thing? That's the one. What does that actually involve? Here, have a read of this. It explains it all. O. M. G. O. M. G. If you think I'm getting that involved with anyone's lady bits, you're deluded. There are worse jobs. I can categorically assure you there aren't. There are you know. No. There aren't. I'd do anything else in preference to that. Okay, no worries. I'll recommend you for another role that opened up this week then. Does it involve getting intimately acquainted with anyone's lady bits? Not directly, no. In that case I'll take it. Sure? Positive. Okay. Hi, I've got a volunteer for that position you're trying to fill. Yes. The personal assistant to Jeff Bayos. Yes, the one with special responsibility for photo management. Hang up woman. Hang up right now.